in every good way that I can mean this. This is a normal Sunday at Covenant Baptist Church because we celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Christ every week. And like the Apostle Paul said, if Jesus is not risen, if Christ is still dead, we are flat out wasting our time. We may as well be out of here doing something else. But because we believe and know that Christ is alive, where else would we rather be than to be here, to sit under God's word, to worship Christ together, and to be encouraged in the Lord? Because our lives are hard. Let's be frank. Let's go to the Lord now and pray and ask him for his help as we're going to look to the Bible. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you and we confess that we struggle in a lot of ways. We struggle even on an Easter Sunday morning to feel the ways that we know we should feel. We come this morning to a service like this, some of us doing well, some of us not. Some of us questioning everything in life, maybe. Father, our confidence is not in ourselves in any way. Our confidence is in you and in the power of your spirit to meet us in our need. And so we pray that you would now. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we live between Christ's first coming and his second one. We live in the era after Jesus came the first time to accomplish salvation. But we are waiting for him to return, to consummate our redemption, so that we will be resurrected to eternal life, delivered finally from pain and death and sin and horrors of all kinds. And in between his first and his second coming, this life has some good things in it. There are blessings in this life for sure. The world that God made, he made good. And though the fall has marred it, there is still good in the world. And there is still good in life as a result. But at the same time, because of the curse, because of sin, because of the fall, this life is hard. It is no joke. We are fallen. And that means a lot of stuff. That means that we, more often than not, don't think the things we should. We don't want the things we should. We don't feel the ways that we know we should feel. We struggle to do what's right. And the world around us is broken too. Bad things happen to us that we have no control over. There's a reason why anxiety and things like that exist because this life is often racked with pain and trial things that we would never sign up for. And as if all of that weren't enough, Scripture tells us that Satan and the forces of darkness wage war against us all the time. So the question is, what do we do? What hope do we have? Well, at the heart of the exhortation of the apostles to the church is this. Remember who you are in Christ. You've been united to him. Remember what God has done for you in Christ. And remember what God has given you in Christ and put it on. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to be looking today at Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. This is the perhaps well-known to some passage about the armor of God. We are making our way toward the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We all we have left, I should say, after this Sunday is his final 
greeting. This section of text that we are looking at today is really the last word of exhortation in this letter that Paul is going to give to the Ephesian Christians and thereby to the church. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't worry about that. We're going to get the words to the sermon text or the words from the text on the screen behind me, and you'll be able to follow along that way. You will be helped to do that. Now that you've had a moment to turn, let's listen now to God's word as I read it for us, beginning in Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. We thank God for his word today, as we do every Lord's Day. I want to consider this text in three parts, three sections. We'll take them one at a time. Part one, we're going to consider the exhortation to put on the armor of God and the reason we need it. Part one, we're going to consider the exhortation to put on the armor of God and the reason we need it. We're going to look at verses 10 to 13 order to do that. Put your eyes on verse 10. Paul begins this paragraph by saying, finally, this is his last, again, exhortation to these Christians. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now notice what it says. Be strong, what? In the Lord. And in the strength of what? His might. This isn't about our strength, right? This is about God's strength on our behalf. Christians understand that any strength we have that means anything is completely of God. This shouldn't surprise us, right? This exhortation to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might shouldn't surprise us at all because this is how the entire Christian life works. We are not strong in ourselves. We are weak, not strong. We are needy and not sufficient. We are poor and not rich. Our hope is that the Lord is our strength. Our hope is that he is our sufficiency. Our hope is that the one who was rich made himself poor for our sake so that by his poverty, by Jesus emptying himself and coming down to live and die that we might become rich. 
So none of what is about to come in this armor of God section is promoting some kind of like green beret Christianity. It is not promoting the kind of Christianity where you need to white knuckle this thing and only the strong survive. Far from it. This entire section on the armor of God is a call to look to the one who says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. It is in abandoning our own strength and our own efforts and looking to Jesus that we are able to stand firm because he alone is our strength. Draws on verse 11. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, Paul, throughout this letter, has been using the image of walking to describe and illustrate the Christian life. But in these verses, he's going to use a different image. He's using the image of a soldier standing firm in battle. It drives on verse 12. Paul's going to ground that exhortation that he gave in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil because we don't battle ultimately against flesh and blood. We don't battle ultimately against earthly things. It's easy to think that we do, right? Because we live in a physical, tangible world. We see things, we hear things, we smell things, we touch things. And so it's easy to think that this is what really matters. This does matter, but there is something more to this world than this that we can see. We battle, Paul says, against spiritual forces. The words he uses here are, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You remember back in chapter 2 and verse 2 where Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air? All Paul is saying here in verse 12 is that we battle against Satan and all the other powerful spiritual beings that make up the power of the air. Put your eyes on verse 13. Therefore, because of that reality, because of that spiritual battle that is always being waged, take up the whole armor of God so that you can withstand in the evil day, so that you can stand firm. All right, so question, what is this armor of God? What is it that we're supposed to take up and put on? That will be part two. Part two, we were going to consider the armor itself from verses 14 to 17. The armor itself from verses 14 to 17. And this is by far the longest section. This will be the majority of our time, just to prepare you. Paul begins in verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word 
God. So a few big things to note before we go any further. One, we ought not make too much of which thing is which piece of armor. You guys have probably all read devotionals that do this, study Bibles that do this. It's unhelpful. It's kind of a confusion of the point. So we ought not get mired in the weeds of which thing is which piece of armor. Paul's analogy is simply this, that just as a soldier puts on armor to protect him in battle, we too put on armor to protect ourselves in the battle we fight. Second thing to note. Remember that in all of this, Paul is still writing to the church. He is writing to the church corporate. The corporate nature of this passage, if it's in doubt at all, becomes crystal clear in verse 18, where the exhortations to prayer are all corporate. Pray for all the saints. Pray for each other, right? So a lot of times, I think, in our church context, we take the armor of God or have been taught to take the armor of God passage and hyper-individualize it. We shouldn't do that either. This is something that we together do. The corporate reality drives the private reality. Third thing to note. None of the armor of God is about us. That should not shock anyone. It's called the armor of God. It is about Christ. It is about what God has done for us in Him. If you've read the sermon title, you're not surprised by that statement. Jesus is the armor of God for us. Now, let's look at the armor. Let's look at what it is. Fasten on the belt of truth. Well, whose truth? Whose truth? Yours? The truth about what? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, whose righteousness is that? Yours? Mine? You're going to wage war against the devil with that? Your righteousness? I don't think so. Put on the gospel of peace. Now, whose gospel is that? And who accomplished it? Take up the shield of faith. Of faith. What is faith? It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with what you've done. Take up the helmet of salvation. Again, whose salvation? Who accomplished that salvation? Salvation is of who? The Lord. Salvation belongs to whom? To the Lord. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of who? Of God. And who is that word about? What does it reveal? Paul is like, look, We don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Y'all, in other words, we are in over our heads. We are punching way above our weight here. And so we had better put on Christ. Christ for us is the armor of God. Paul writes like this in other places. In Romans 13, in verse 12 and following, he writes, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, he explains that metaphor, that armor of light, what he means by it a couple of verses later when he writes, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So when Paul exhorts us to put on the armor of God, it's another way of saying, put on Christ. Now, with respect to the battle that we fight, we're talking about spiritual warfare here. So it's in view in this passage, and this is intense. We battle against sin in our flesh. We battle the fallenness of the world that we live in. And we battle Satan and the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And he hates Christians. He hates the church. He seeks to destroy us. He is called the father of lies and also the great accuser of the brethren. So how is it that we will stand? We will stand arrayed in God's armor or not at all. So let's take the armor one piece at a time. The belt of truth. It is the belt, friends, of God's truth, not yours, God's. And it is the truth about what? Well, it's the truth about God, about who he is, about his nature, his power, his purposes, his law, his promises that always stand. the truth about us, about who and what we are. It's the truth about our standing before God. And it's the truth about redemption. The truth about redemption, more pointedly, that was accomplished by Jesus and given to us. We have confidence because we know God's word to be truth. And we find In that truth, most fundamentally, the wonderful promises that God has made to us in Christ. Secondly, let's consider the breastplate of righteousness. As we have already thought about somewhat, and has been said, I don't know, a dozen times in this service already today, the breastplate of righteousness is not our own righteousness because we don't understand ourselves to have any. We are talking about in the breastplate of righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ that is given to Christians by faith. We're talking about, to use the language of Romans 3, 21 and 22, we're talking about the righteousness of God that is given to all those who believe in Jesus. Friends, it is futile and foolish to look to our own righteousness. When it comes to this battle that we're fighting, To look to our own righteousness is flat out absurd. Why? Because on our best day, best day, our righteousness is at best mixed and tainted with sin. We look, therefore, to Christ's righteousness only. We confessed it earlier in the service that God counts to us the active obedience of Christ to the entire law and his passive obedience in his suffering, he counts that to us as our whole and only righteousness by faith. That's what we look to. His righteousness, unlike ours, is perfect. His righteousness, unlike ours, is unshakable, and so we can stand there. Saints, when it comes to righteousness, and our standing before God, all we really have is Christ, and he is enough. 
Now let's consider thirdly the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. When you see that word peace there, it's called the gospel of peace because it's the good news of the peace that we now have with God. But a huge question that must be answered is this. What is the gospel? What is it? You ask a hundred Christians that question, you're going to get dozens of different answers, which is a frightening thought. And frankly, it is a damning proposition for the church that we have done that poor of a job in catechizing one another as to what the gospel is. But what is the gospel? Well, the gospel, as the name implies, good tidings, it's news. It is news and a message about Jesus and what he did for sinners in the place of sinners. It is news about Jesus and what he did for us that is to be believed, trusted, and rested in. So another big question, who did the gospel? Who did the gospel? Because you hear this language sometimes today. The church needs to do the gospel. The church needs to live the gospel. But with all due respect, there is one person who did the gospel. There's one person who lived it. His name is Jesus. Nobody else does that. So, we understand that the gospel actually contains nothing within it whatsoever that we need to do. It is news of what Jesus did. He did it. We receive it by faith. And uh, track with me. The reason why that matters so much is because it is only that understanding, not only that is biblical, but it is only that understanding that could ever produce peace before God. To understand that the gospel is completely about what Jesus did, and I received that work. If the gospel contains in it even 0.1% of something that I must do, it is no gospel at all. Read the Bible. Read the history of God's people if you question that reality. The history of God's people, we're no different, is one of failure, not success. It is one of sin and not righteousness. So how could we ever have peace if anything depends on us? We couldn't. But as it stands, the gospel is all of Christ, and therefore we have peace with God. As it stands, as Paul writes in Romans 5.1, we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore we have peace. Let's consider next the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Right, what is faith? There's a reason why this is called the shield of faith and not like the shield of faithfulness. Faith is looking completely away from ourselves and trusting in another. In particular, it is looking completely away from oneself and trusting in Jesus. As I said, it is the shield of faith, not the shield of faithfulness, which is good news because our faithfulness ebbs and flows, like a lot, from day to day. We are often, in our own minds, we have a 
skewed understanding of ourselves. So we often think ourselves to be more faithful than we really are. But even on days when we are being faithful, it does not take a lot to derail that train. So while our faithfulness ebbs and flows like crazy, the object of our faith, the, who is our Savior, is the one who is called the solid rock and the rock of ages. And even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Paul says that with the shield of faith, we extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, what are those flaming darts? The flaming darts of the enemy, what are they? Biblically, I would understand them to be Satan's accusations of us. The great accuser of the brethren he is. He throws and shoots those kinds of darts at you all the time, condemning you, accusing you. Well, how is it that the shield of faith extinguishes those darts? Well, because it is by faith that the merit and righteousness of Christ are applied to us. Because it is by faith that the satisfaction that Jesus has made for our sins is applied to us. We know that in Christ, there is no debt that will ever be demanded of us that Christ is not fully paid. We know that in Christ, no righteousness will ever be required of us that Jesus has not provided. The shield of faith extinguishes the darts of the enemy because it is by faith that we have been united to Jesus. And he is now our intercessor. He intercedes on our behalf in an ongoing way. Jesus is now our advocate. He pleads for us when we sin. Pleads the merit of his blood like we sang together this morning. And because we know now that Jesus is our refuge, we quite literally hide ourselves in him. He stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. So our own consciences and our own hearts condemn us all the time. And so does Satan. We fight a constant battle against his accusations. Now, for those outside of Christ, the devil in his schemes, like see the language of verse 11, for those outside of Christ, Satan works to keep people comfortable in their sin. Or he works to keep people opposed to God. He does this by convincing them that their anger at God is justifiable. He does this by convincing them that their denial of God's existence is wisdom. He does this by telling them they're fine. Satan says to every person outside of Christ, you're fine, you don't need mercy. But for those in Christ, what does he do? He accuses us. He says to us, you're not legit. He says to us, there is no mercy for such as you. There might be mercy for some, but not for a sinner like you. He says to us, you don't have enough faith. Yeah, people might be saved by faith in Jesus, but not with the weak faith you have. You don't have enough love either, by the way. You'll be known by your love for one another. You don't have enough. So how do we respond? What do we have? If all we've got in that moment when Satan accuses us like that 
is our faithfulness. God help us. Satan's accusations, friends, are hard because he has a lot of material to work with. It's not as though the things that he accuses us of are completely ridiculous. Because we all are often a mess. So, what do we... Satan says to us, you're not legit. We respond, you're right. In myself, I'm not. But my legitimacy is found in Christ. He will say, but there's no mercy for such as you. And we say, oh, but there is mercy and grace and patience for even the foremost of sinners. He says, but you don't have enough faith. You don't have enough love. And we respond, you're right. I often have but a flicker of faith and a flicker of love to which he says, well, Christ is not going to regard that at all. You think he's going to regard that flicker of faith you have? To which we respond, oh, but he will because he is gentle and lowly of heart. He will regard it because he bids me come to him for peace and rest. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not put out. Satan, you are wrong because Jesus will fan the flicker of my faith and love until he has brought judgment to victory. Take up the shield of faith. Next, let's consider the helmet of salvation. Again, we ask, whose salvation? The Lord's salvation. Accomplished by whom? Not by us, but by Christ. Applied to us how? By grace, not by merit. We could never deserve it. We could never have earned it. And it's applied to us through faith, not works. It is not through what we do. It is solely by trusting in what Christ has done. And so our salvation is rock solid. Our salvation is both a present reality and a future hope. Those two things are not contradictory. Because oftentimes in our human brains, we think of something that lies in the future as being uncertain somehow. Not so with our salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. All of that hangs together and all of it rests on Jesus. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. Lastly, let's consider the sword of the Spirit. Now, what is the sword of the Spirit? Paul answers that. He describes it in verse 17. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. God has given us His Word by the inspiration of His Holy Spirit. His Word, as it's described elsewhere, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. In it, God reveals his nature and his character. In it, God exposes the truth about our hearts. In it, God reveals his law to restrain our corruption, to teach us good and bad, to teach us right and wrong, and he gives us the law to crush us and drive us to Christ. In his word, God ultimately reveals his Christ because he is the point of the whole thing. Jesus says this himself. When you think about taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, remember the words of your Savior. 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The word of God is our weapon against the enemy, friends, because it reveals to us our Savior. It reveals to us our Redeemer. It reveals to us the one who is our champion who has crushed Satan's head. It reveals to us the one who is our defender, our rock, and our refuge. And therein lies its usefulness. So that was all part two, the armor of God. None of it about you. All of it about Christ. And therefore, we can stand. Part three. We're going to consider the words of Paul from verses 18 to 20, where he effectively says this, pray for each other and pray for me. Pray for each other and pray for me. That's part three. Paul's going to continue on now. And as I mentioned earlier, lest we think any of this is individualized, it's not. Paul's exhortations here make that very plain. Beginning in verse 18, he writes, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. He's going to further explain what he means. To that end, keep alert. To that end, what, what is that end? Prayer and supplication. Supplication meaning interceding for one another. Bringing our pleas and our requests to God on behalf of one another. Persevere in doing that, he says. Making supplication for all the saints. The emphasis, as I just said, is supplication in prayer. We take our pleas to him, and we take our pleas to him in particular of things that we could never do, but he can. And Paul says we are to do this for one another. And the call to vigilance, just to reiterate, is a call to prayer and dependence upon God. You realize that's what prayer is at the heart of it, right? We over-spiritualize prayer a lot. Prayer at the heart of it is the outworking of the life of faith. At the heart of it, prayer is the outworking of a life of dependence upon God. Because we know that we need Him. We know that we are powerless to do so many things, but that He is able. Where we lack wisdom, he has it. Where we lack perspective, he gives it. We are in need of mercy, he lavishes it upon us. And thereby we pray. We pray for that reason. In verses 19 and 20, Paul's going to go on though. This is kind of a sweet personal thing. I think a lot of times we immortalize the apostles. We immortalize figures in the scripture in ways that we just shouldn't. Paul is a human being. A man who writes over and over again, just like we say of ourselves, I don't have a righteousness of my own. I'm trusting in Christ. And as a human being, he says, and also for me. Pray for me. That words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Lest we confuse it that Paul just walked around with just this inexhaustible well of bravery and boldness. I don't think so. He's a weak, fallen man who understands that he needs grace, he, he needs boldness, and he needs the saints to pray for him. So yeah, that's what Paul's saying in verses 18, 19, and 20. Pray for one another and pray for me. So simple, so necessary. We are all in the midst of a battle. 
We are all living in this fallen world. We need God's grace and so pray for the saints, says Paul. Intercede for each other. And then he adds, and guys, I'm out here trying to preach the gospel. My life often has not gone well. It's been hard. And I need grace because I need boldness. I need you to pray for me. Remember, friends, that these verses are not disconnected from everything that Paul has written up to this point. We can tend to do that too when we come to Scripture. We zoom in on a paragraph. We've got all these like headings that separate letters and books up into various sections and we can look at them in isolation. We shouldn't do that. These verses are connected to everything that Paul has written for over five chapters. This matters for at least a couple significant reasons. One, Paul has already exhorted the Ephesians to put off the old man and put on the new man. And in doing that, so you should be thinking, chapter 4, chapter 5, put off the old man, put on the new man. In doing that, he was pointing the Ephesians to what? Their new identity in Christ. He was encouraging them to live in light of that. He was not telling them to put on something that they did not already have. So too here. In exhorting the Ephesians and thereby all of us to put on the armor of God, he is not telling us some super mystical, ethereal thing to do. He's not telling us to put on something that we don't already have. These things that he's telling us to put on, God's truth and Christ's righteousness and faith and salvation, to take up God's word, these things are ours. And Paul is encouraging us to live in them and to stand in them. It is a call to remember who we are and to remember who our Savior is. So verse 12, all of those rulers and authorities all of those cosmic powers over this present darkness, all of those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Christ has defeated every one of them. So Paul is just reminding us of that reality and saying, live there. Live in that, in the strength of the Lord, and put on Christ your Savior, who has crushed Satan's head. But the second reason it really matters that we see that this piece on the armor of God is connected to everything that's come before, is that one might ask this question legitimately. Bro, how do we go about putting on the armor of God? How do we go about putting it on? Sadly, there is often a very individualized answer that's given. As though you, by yourself, need to figure this out and handle it. That it's Ultimately, then, all about you and your private devotion. So how do we go about putting on the armor of God? I think that Paul's answer would be that we do all the things that he's been exhorting the church to do throughout the entire letter. It's nothing new. He's been telling us to live life together in the church. He tells us to gather regularly together to encourage one another in Christ. He tells us to gathered, sit under the word preached by teachers that Christ has given to the church, and thereby we will be grounded in sound teaching. He's encouraged us to gather together to encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
He's told us to gather to pray. He's told us to pray for one another as a part of our regular rhythm of life. He has told us that we build one another up in love, that we speak the truth to each other and that we're not to tear one another down. He tells us that we're to forgive one another and walk in the light and flee from sin. He tells us that we are to mutually submit to one another. And here's the big thing. We are not pitting the corporate life over and against the private. Don't hear me say that. But we have been so conditioned to think that the private life drives the corporate in the American church. It is backwards from the New Testament. The corporate drives the private, according to this book. So it is not that your private life doesn't matter. It does matter. But you will derive your strength and your encouragement not when you're alone primarily, but when you are with the saints. Now, given that the armor of God is about Christ, the last huge thing that must be said about how do we go about putting on the armor of God, given that the armor of God is about Jesus, we continually point one another to him. Over and over again, we do. We have conversations sometimes as pastors and as a staff, and we're all human. And so we, too, can fall prey to this lie that it's like, man, we really do make a business of saying the same stuff all the time. Are the people going to get tired of hearing it? You're going to get tired of hearing about Jesus all the time. To which we remind ourselves, well, okay, that's insane, because what else do we have to give? What else do we have to offer? What else could a wretch like me offer you other than Jesus, right? So we know that, but then we take heart as we consider even the words of Paul that we read this morning. To write the same things to you again is of no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. We take refuge in even saints who have lived before, like Martin Luther, who said, I preach the gospel every time we gather because we forget it every week. So when I say this, I know I say it a lot. But to put on the armor of God means that we unashamedly, constantly point one another to Christ, who is our righteousness and our surety and our salvation. He is the ground of our hope and our peace and our confidence. And there is no other thing, there is no other person, there's nothing other than him that you could ever stand on. If you want to stand on something else, go somewhere else. We remind one another that we would be ruined if it weren't for Christ. We remind one another that Satan would destroy us if it weren't for Christ. We remind one another that we would be ultimately lost if it weren't for Christ. We remind one another that we might have every reason to be afraid if it were not for Christ. But as it stands, we are secure. I don't know about you, but I need that reminder. Because my experience and my life say everything is different than that. They don't ever say that to me, that you're secure. As our Lord has said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of we remind one another of that. And now we close in prayer.
Father, we come to you in need as we were when the sermon began, and we ask for your grace. We ask that you would continue to teach us according to your word. We pray that as we've considered these things, the armor that you have given us that is all about your son, we pray that we would be diligent in encouraging one another and in taking up this armor. We pray that we would be diligent in praying for each other and interceding for one another regularly. And we pray that you would sustain our faith in your son. We pray that you would use everything that we've done up to now to that end. And we pray that you would use your table as we are about to come to it. We ask that you would nourish us, sustain us, and strengthen us in Christ as we partake of the table together. And we ask for that now in Jesus' name.